listening to the Retail Razor Show, where your expert hosts and their guests cut through the clutter in retail and retail tech to shape the future of retail. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Retail Razor Show. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. And I'm your co-host, Casey Golden. Welcome to Retail's favorite podcast for product junkies, commerce technologists, and everyone else in retail and retail tech alike. Today, we are answering a very important question. How will AR technology transform retail? We'll meet our latest retail transformer, Neil Redding, head of product at Aoki Labs, who will help us answer that question. And as an added bonus, we'll also touch on some relevant learnings from this year's Shop Talk event. And Ricardo, that's not the only bonus this episode, is it? That's right. We have multiple bonuses this episode. Originally, we intended to record this session as part of our Shop Talk Live mini-series with our special guest host for that series, Jeff Roster, from This Week in Innovation. But as sometimes happens, schedules just didn't work out, and we couldn't manage to fit it into our recording calendar during the show. So we recorded this after we'd all returned home from Shop Talk, and fortunately, Jeff was able to join us too. So we have not one, not two, but three hosts in this episode to gang up on our guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope it wasn't intimidating for Neil. We're just, you know, keeping it real. Yeah, I'm sure he was just fine. In fact, I'm confident our listeners and viewers will agree that Neil and the work he's doing at Alki Labs are more than meets the eye. I knew you'd find a way to work in that 80s pop culture reference. I wouldn't dare you to pass up a chance. No, I would not. Definitely not. But that's just the first bonus for this episode, isn't it? It is. And before you try to dash out yet another pop culture reference, let's face it, we have to address the elephant in the room. If we're talking about immersive commerce and AR and retail, I think we have to acknowledge the new player in town, Apple. Yes, that's right. And... I'm impressed we made it this far into the episode without bringing up Apple's Vision Pro mixed reality headset, right? And even in all its $3,500 glory. So Ricardo, I think you have some thoughts you want to share on Apple's new product. And I assume it's not that you're pre-ordering one? Uh, no, uh, not at that price. I'm not. But I do have maybe one brief anecdote I'll share since I've been thinking about this product over the weekend before we set up to record this. And I have a specific use case that made me think, you know, this would have been so much better and easier if I had been using Vision Pro. Okay. Do, do tell. So I was shopping for a number of things over the weekend. And as I'm usually inclined to do, I was doing a lot of comparison shopping to the point where, you know, I've got two laptops. I've got multiple monitors on my screen and an iPad and iPhone and so on. And yeah, I'm pretty much at any given time when I'm doing that much shopping, I'm probably using all of them just to do comparison shopping, because I want to see things side by side, right? I get to a website, I, I want to look at another page. So I could easily have, I don't know, 20 or more browser windows or app windows open to, to do all that and compare. So guess what? I still didn't have enough screen real estate after all that. I was still constantly switching browser tabs and windows to look at things. All right, everyone, this is exactly why when I am shopping for electronics <laughs> or podcast products, I just ask Ricardo for his <laughs> shopping list <laughs> because he's done his diligence and I don't have to go through this pain. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was a good shopper, but this is something where I can definitely see how Apple's Vision Pro would have fit into this uh, and I'd get my list a lot quicker. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, exactly right. So I was thinking about, you know, putting this in the context of the demos they did at WWDC. And I realized if I had a Vision Pro, what would I be doing? I mean, I would basically be taking all of the space in front of me and around me, right, available to just display anything on that, you know, let's call it virtual screen, right, in my whole field of view. And if I understand the demos they did, I'm going to be able to move all these things around by just waving my hand or looking around with my eyes. So the interface is really natural and simple that way, I have to believe. But it's kind of like having had every single window and tab that I had up on my screen monitor here side by side so I could look at it while shopping. So just imagine the product discovery and research I could have been doing at the same time. So I realized that would have been a lot faster if I had had all the space in front of me to get that shopping done. I bet I could have been done in at least one fifth the time, maybe less. Yeah, I can definitely see a use case here for comparison shopping. It is painful, especially with the browsers, because you can't read all the product pages at the same time and you forget. Yeah, It's easier yeah. just for same site, for like multiple products or even cross site, because at the end of the day, a lot of times we have to go to 10 different e-commerce websites to exactly. kind of see what's in the market. Yeah, exactly. That, and that's just one commerce example. I'm sure there are others. Well, with that said, we have just one more thing or bonus this episode to talk about. That's right. So to really bring this home, not just have my one little anecdotal story about using AR and VR with this new Apple product, we're bringing the gang back together for a short recap after our interview session with Neil. So after that segment, we'll be back on again and we'll go a little bit deeper into what we predict the impact might be of Vision Pro on retail and in this context of AR and VR. So stick around for that. Casey, what do you say we roll out and go straight to the interview? Absolutely. Let's move on to the discussion with retail transformer, Neil Redding. Welcome everybody. And we are here with Neil Redding from Alki Labs, our special guest for this week's episode. And not only do we have Neil, but this is also a special event because we're once again crossing over with This Week in Innovation and our one of our fan favorite retail Avengers, Mr. Jeff Roster, as a guest host. Welcome, Jeff. Welcome, Neil. Well, well, thank you so much. Glad to be here. And thanks, Ricardo. Yeah, excellent to be here as well. And of course, I'm always accompanied by my wonderful co-host, Casey. I'm so lucky I get to finally share the screen with Jeff. Oh, you're <laughs> always after having yeah. missed our last two crossover events. <laughs> oh man! Well, you actually work for a living. You're not like an analyst. You just get to like you know bang around at, at conferences and do and record things. So you actually have to produce a product. It's a di- it's a different deal for sure. It is. So yep, glad to have you both here. I'm really excited about this topic and this conversation. I think it's going to be pretty good. All right. Well, with that, Neil, let's dive in and uh, we're going to let you introduce yourself, your background, and tell us a little bit about what Alki Labs is up to in the retail space. Sure thing, Ricardo. So I'm Neil Redding. I'm currently head of product at Alki Labs, which is a technology startup. We're a technology company focused on spatial positioning. And specifically, we enable the precise placement of digital information in physical space. So you might ask, you know, why are we, why am I here on a retail podcast, right? Why am I talking to retailers? Why have I been at Shop Talk recently? 
And the answer is that of all the different kinds of companies that we've spoken to over the past year, as we've been starting to bring this capability of placing information in physical space to market, many different kinds of companies, but retailers have been the most enthusiastic in our conversations because they really understand the value of placement and specifically product placement in merchandising approaches. We keep having retailers tell us, particularly grocery retailers, but that eye level is buy level. You know, like often shoppers don't see product if it's not at eye level. And so they're constantly compromising in terms of like what they're able to place there. And what we're able to do using augmented reality on shoppers' phones and building this capability into existing retailer mobile apps is precisely place information about products, help shoppers find those products, engage in discovery and search in ways that they would in e-commerce contexts, but in the physical store. So and they see it as, as really valuable in terms of driving basket size, reducing the need for store associates to help customers find what they're looking for or learn about products they're looking for. So, so that's kind of the overview of why we're bringing our technology to the retail context. And I know we talked a little bit about before, before the show started about the concept of convergent commerce. I know there's a lot of terms going around in this kind of post-omni-channel kind of mode, right? And the reason why, you know, I think we like convergent commerce of the various terms that are out there is because we really see what we're doing as bringing together or converging digital and physical. And we can think of the near future as digital coordinate systems in physical space that allow for the digital to show up in the physical world. One of the things I, I like to say that I think played well in the conversations I had at Shop Talk is, you know how you might remember if you're old enough, if you're old as I am, Razorfish in the 90s saying, everything that can be digital will be, right? And in 1998 or 99, that was a really kind of provocative stance, but it was got their agency so much attention and so much traction in the world of Fortune 500 companies that needed websites at the time, right? But what we say today, and what I've been saying for a while is everything that is digital that can be more useful, more relevant, positioned spatially in the physical world is going to start to become positioned spatially in the physical world. It's going to start to show up, you know, moving beyond these black slabs that we've had in our hands for quite a while and showing up in our physical environment in ways that that makes them more useful. Now that when I say start showing up, I mean there's to be fair, like a trajectory for that, right? I mean, we're in the very early days of augmented reality. It still has to prove itself. But we feel that in, in retail contexts, particularly grocery contexts, where there's a lot of value for the retailer, and we think value for the shopper in positioning information this way, that this could be one of the points that prompts this behavior shift. I think it's really important to be noting that it's not so much of the bringing to digital but pulling digital into these physical spaces, because that's where all the traffic is, right? Say where 80% of the business is being done. That's where we can get this acquisition and be able to get usership. And we've already had this problem of having stores just being so boring or these physical spaces to just be so flat that they haven't changed since the internet, you know? And so I think it is this really great way that you guys are putting the digital back into the physical stores to really pull that story together. It's almost in, uh, almost kind of tips over into the retail attainment as an opportunity as well. 
somebody was just mentioning, and I love your guys' perspective on this, that anchor stores are killing malls because anchor stores are struggling. And I kind of feel that like technology could be the new anchor on bringing into like small environments and experiences is that maybe technology for that discovery and the search and the entertainment and the digital piece in the physical spaces. I think it's really interesting. We see a lot of people talking the opposite direction. So. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that you shared in there, Casey, you know, I mean, one piece is there's been a lot of talk, obviously, over the past couple of years about metaverse or immersive shopping or even virtual reality for shopping. We feel that that's about bringing people or enticing them to to some place where they aren't already, right? I mean, it's like come into our immersive space and do something that you're not already doing. What we're hoping to do is just meet people where they already are. As you said, we know that people, and again, you know, we're looking at all retail, but we feel like grocery is a good place to start because people go to grocery stores all the time, right? Many people go multiple times a week. This is where people already are. And they're there for specific reasons. They're looking for specific things. And as you're saying, it, it can be boring. It can be a very commodified kind of experience in many residential communities, right? And so how to make, how to create something differentiated if you're a retailer. And we've definitely heard from some of the ones that we're in conversations with that they see what we're doing as helping drive their digital experience, helping draw people you know, in a differentiated way to the store. We also actually have a sister company that's building on our same enabling technology. The company's called Matterless, and it's building augmented reality games and toys that some of the retailers we're speaking to are really interested in deploying these also in their spaces to keep kids entertained in the store, give them something to do that is part of the destination of that shopping experience. And we're still, you know, we're exploring, we're going to see like, how well does this work? I think certain experiences work better than others in certain contexts. But yeah, so, so there's the there's the shopping-tainment or just the entertainment angle of this. There's the utility of it. We can talk about all these different things. But the bottom line is really meeting people where they are in that moment of shopping intent, right? Just like Google realized that allowed them to print their billions, you know, over 20 years ago. It's like when people type in something, a search phrase or a search keyword that represents a purchasable item, that's intent, Right. And that's worth a lot of money to whoever can provide or fulfill on that intent. And so what we're trying to do is show up with this digital content and information at that moment, spatially and temporally, you know, of shopping intent with useful information for the shopper that, of course, will then drive bigger basket size and so on for the retailer. So, Neil, then it is, you know, if I focusing a little bit on, on groceries, is a typical grocery example then in the way you guys are seeing this, that consumers are going to be walking down an aisle, right? They're, maybe they're looking for a product. They know roughly where it is, but they're trying to find it, that th this technology will help them not only find where something is, but also have extra information, right? That's not readily available on the shelf, right? Because more than likely, they're going to be looking for a product in a category, and there's going to be 10 of them on the shelf from different brands, and they want to have some ability to narrow that down. So is that the common example or are we really talking about something even beyond that? It, it, it's a great example, Ricardo. I think actually the commonest example that we've heard from across grocery retailers is they want to drive shoppers' awareness of promotions and deals because the reason why they have you know certain items on promotion or deals on certain items at any given time is to move those, right? And that's their mm -hmm. intention. And they know 
that with printed leaflets, even with physical signage in the store, there's only so much that they can draw shoppers' attention to. And they know that in many cases, shoppers are shopping the deals of the week, right? I mean, many people, I don't know about you, but like I- Guilty as charged. Parents who are like, look, some of us still do it. Definitely grew up with like right. coupon I buy the $12 parents. pickles, so it's not- <laughs> 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 Bubbies. I like, I love bubbies and occasionally it's $12, but yeah. No, no, no. I know, but like we covered this earlier, Casey, right? Like, you know, the bougie pickles. But, <laughs> But no, but so lots of people do, right? And so we're talking to larger grocery retail chains, right? So there's when you're a mass market store like that, there's you do a lot of promotions and your shoppers are interested in those. And they know that they can't draw shoppers' attention as, as effectively to these promotions because of the eye level as buy level maxim and various other things. So so that to answer your question, Ricardo, that's kind of the number one thing they want to do. And they've said to us, if you can increase the average basket size for shoppers in our store by one item, that'll be a win for us, right? Because oh, they know the average know. number of items in the basket for a grocery wow. shop per visit is 10 to 15. So one item is a significant percentage, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, they've merchandised and laid out their stores. So there's impulse buys at the cash register and so on, right. if they're still doing that sort of traditional checkout approach, which we know is kind of falling by the wayside. But so yes, promotions and deals are kind of the top thing we're hearing from people. But we could talk about other use cases as well. What would that look like as a consumer? Like, what would that feel like? I'm walking into that grocery store. There is a promotion. How am I experiencing what you got? You have enabled this company to do now. Like, I mean, it's not a screen, right? It's me opening up my mobile phone. It's opening your phone. Yes. Yeah. So we have videos with in-app footage that you can find at alkylabs.com slash retail. You know, some slides where we're talking, it's sort of an early presentation about our capabilities in convergent commerce, but there's a couple of videos in there. There's one in a mall, there's one in the grocery store, there's one in actually in Ikea in, the, in a furniture store. Hmm. But the grocery one is most relevant here because it gives you a sense of what it's like to show up in a store with a particular shopping list based on a recipe. The scenario is actually my partner said, hey, Neil, coming home from work today, you know, I want to make a bolognese. Can you get stuff on the list for a bolognese? So I have that list of items. You know, It's tomatoes, it's spaghetti, it's onions, it's whatever, right? Because I'm going to make it from scratch, right? Not not buy it in the sauce can or jar. And so what you see in that video is what the experience would be in, in prototype form, which is I come into the store and holding my phone at, you know, looking at my phone, like as a camera, you know, pointing around the room, I can see these sort of landmarks, you know, digital labels of where these items on my shopping list are. And there are also differently color-coded labels that showcase promoted items by the store. So in this case, we're showcasing the fact that the store could just know, okay, great, you're shopping for a bolognese. You don't have Parmesan on your list. You really should have it on your list. So we're going to draw your attention to that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a personalized suggestion based on the, the shopping intent that I have coming into the store. That could just as easily be a deal you know, it's like, great, we've got tiramisu on special this week and you can pick that up, right? Because you're having an Italian dinner, whatever, you know, something like that. So that makes sense. So, so does that make sense? I mean, so yeah, this is always just really helps just to kind of put it out there as one sample. Yeah. You know? No, 100%. I mean, we have to get specific here, right? So what do we see people doing with this? And so 
yeah, promotions and deals, shopping from a list. You know, one of the other things that we can do if we just sort of back out again to this statement of being able to place digital information precisely in physical space and then leveraging first party data that retailers have is personalized retail media, you know, as a phrase. Mm-hmm. This is something we can enable. And I remember having the first time I said this in one of my meetups at Shop Talk, an analyst from Coresight Research said, bingo, like that's the two top buzz phrases of the show this year. And you've got both of them. If you could do that. Don't brilliant. encourage him, Neil. Do not encourage Ricardo on this subject. <laughs> oh, I've already had to admit he was right on, on, on retail media. <laughs> it pains me, but uh, no, but without a here's doubt, the there's thing. no question. No, no, no. But here's the thing I would say about that, Jeff, is that you know retail media is clear why it's hugely valuable, right? Because you're meeting people where they are when they're already, like you know if you're reaching them while they're shopping, then they're, there's intent to buy, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing about just placing retail media in a store, even if it's sort of located in a specific section or product category in the store, it's the bread aisle, it's the snacks aisle, it's the fish counter, whatever, you're still showing the same thing to a 15-year-old as you're showing to an 80-year-old grandma, right? And you're showing the same thing to a vegan as you are to a person who eats meat at every meal. So Hmm. what we're talking about is taking that a step further and treating this personal device that you have in your hands as an interface to the store and a surface on which personalized retail media can be delivered, right? So it can be what you're seeing in our videos of here's what's on your shopping list and here's where it is in the store. And it could also be it's a, that surface could be used at least some of the time as media inventory that could be personalized and targeted based on the store's first party data. So so that's a bunch of yeah. ideas. But you know, we're coming from this place of we can place information in physical space. So there's lots of different things you can do with it. So I highly recommend everyone watch that video that Neil talked about. I saw it in prep for this and I went, Ricardo, remember mm-hmm. you and I have been, I don't know how many conversations where the N words come up, metaverse. And depending on, you know, whose take it is, I've Neil, I've always been a fan of augmented reality. It's because I'm a pilot. I've trained in simulators. I've worked with augmented reality for 20 years. It's absolutely nothing new for us in aviation. It's It does everything right and very little wrong. And I watched your video. And I said, my goodness, that is exactly what just in, intuitively I said I want. I'm low carbs, low sugar now. So show me everything that's appropriate, which by the way, is probably what 8% of the store max. But talk to me. And I'll give you all the information and I will use your app if you help me or, you know, hide fructose corn syrup or hide what, you know, I'll give you the stuff I don't want. I will give you the stuff I do and market the bejabbers to me because now you're talking my language. I looked at that. I looked at your video and went, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I want. How far are, so first of all, how far are we away from that video of the augmented reality shopping list being actually operational? So great to hear, Jeff. I mean, I share that enthusiasm. And in terms of how far off we are, we are lining up pilots with a handful of grocery retailers as we speak. So we expect these pilots to be hitting the ground in the next month or two, the early ones. Fantastic. And the real, the important dimension to the answer to your question there in terms of augmented reality specifically is it's a bit, well, it's a lot, a function of the capabilities of the devices in people's hands. Because you may know that while high-end iPhones and high-end Android phones are capable of augmented reality, you know, in a fully precise way, 
a lot of phones. I mean, billions of phones in the world are not. And so we are building our enabling technology that we call convergent such that it can work and sort of fall back, if you will, or just start with a non-AR version of precise positioning of this information in space just in a 2D UI on the phone, right? And we still place our coordinate system in the space and the phone can still understand where it is relative to that coordinate system, but it doesn't use augmented reality to show you this information. And so AR is the, you know, we think this is the inevitable future of information being presented in the world that we talked about earlier. It's just going to take a little while for people's personal devices to get there. And then, of course, after that, at some point, we all think, right, that people are going to be wearing glasses and not have to hold black slabs in their hands and view the world through this looking glass in their hands, but eventually have glasses. That continues to be the expectation. We don't know when that's really going to manifest, but you know, we're setting ourselves up as a technology contact company lenses. to our contact lenses too, right? I mean, yeah. Mojo Vision. Yeah. If you follow this tech, yes. I mean, Mojo Vision, really, really amazing. I mean, they've got prototypes out there that are doing yeah. this. So, yeah. so this will happen at some point, right? I mean, I, I think we feel, and I certainly feel myself, that we're much more confident of this future, that digital information will show up in the physical world than we are that people are going to spend a lot of time in a completely immersive simulation like Ready Player One or these metaverse ideas. I mean, I think that we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but I, I think that that's, it's not the way we experience the world and we are physical beings in a physical world, you know? So that's why we're leaning into this direction. Yeah. Well, it's fantastic. That's, that's probably some of the best news I've heard in a long, long time. Any of those, I won't ask you which, which retailers, but are they any in North America? Can I, can I get that Pacific? And then even in California? You're based in California, right? Yes. Yes. So... I love California. I've lived 10 years of my life there. We definitely want to go there. We actually are in conversations, interestingly, with a large property company that owns a whole lot of shopping centers in, Interesting. in Southern California. So that's in terms of active, like sort of hot conversations, that's the closest. We also are looking at a pilot with a large gas station convenience store chain, a thousand stores in the US. That's coming up. And, you know, we have. Thanks to Shop Talk, we've got conversations with some of the largest grocery and also just big box stores as well. So you, I mean, I'm not going to say the names, but you would know who they are. That's great. And wow. so, you know, those are probably longer, longer sales cycles maybe or longer to get to pilots, although there's a lot of enthusiasm that we're getting. But what's also true is that we've got, we're even closer, I think, to pilots with some Hong Kong and Southeast Asian-based grocery retail, as well as big European chains. And to be honest, I mean, in addition to what I already shared about our attraction to grocery as a place to test out this technology and to hopefully foment or what's a less like bougie word, like hopefully facilitate or prompt this, this foment bougie, yeah. it's kind of it seems bougie. <laughs> um, to prompt this behavior shift, right? Which when we could talk about technology-driven behavior shifts, right? Like how did we start looking at black slabs in our hands all day, every day, right? Like what what made that happen? But the short answer is it just became so useful that that's what we were doing, right? For entertainment, mm -hmm. for getting places, for buying things, for you know, communication. And I think AR is not a daily thing because it isn't that useful yet. Right. And so we think, where could it really be useful? And we think this is a context. But getting back to finishing the other question about where, 
grocery retail in Europe is it's just heavily consolidated bottom line like there's a handful almost all the top grocery retail chains are german interestingly and they just have like five figures of stores each across many countries so so those are the ones we're talking to to kind of get you know deployment at scale i also find it interesting too just the way there's so there's so fewer options over in in Europe in some of the other grocery and the spaces are smaller. I think we have enormous grocery stores in the US with so many options that it's so easy here to be unable to make a decision or to switch a brand mm-hmm. because it's just overwhelming. Like everything is overwhelming. Just to pick a different brand for one that's on sale like oh, am I going to like it because there's 20 there's 30 rather than like I found when I was in Europe that there's three. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, the less yeah. risk that I'm going to dislike it because I have to pick one of three. I'm not like overwhelmed by decision making process. But I think when you're not overwhelmed in the decision making process, we're navigating. You can be more present for new things like paying attention to technology, switching brands. You know, yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. What I've definitely found as a you know primarily an American spending more time in Europe is that the big chains are leaning more into technology in certain areas, right? I mean, certainly in Europe and certainly in the shopping experience dimension. Like there are very few retailers I've seen, or at least in grocery in the US, or really in any retail context, where a mobile app does a whole lot of useful stuff for you as a shopper, right? But there are some in Europe. And I think to your point, Casey, also, there are, there are more stores sort of per square mile or square kilometer in Europe, and they're smaller. And people walk to them overwhelmingly. Like That's, that's how you get to a store. Very different in the US, right? Like mm-hmm. in the, Most of the country, people drive and park in a big parking lot. And so it's interesting, like this, this gas station convenience store chain said to us, you know, his number one KPI performance metric for his locations is time to clear the lot. You know, like minimizing the amount of time it takes from someone arrives in their car uh-huh. till the time they leave. And because the constrained resource there is parking spaces. Parking. Interesting. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So which of course it blew the mind of my colleagues who just have never lived in the US that that, that would be the constraint on the store because they've probably never driven a car to a grocery store. Yeah. So so there are differences across cultures. And I think the store format and the size and the inventory, the assortment is certainly different. But yeah, that makes it amenable to different kinds of solutions or like what's valuable to different kinds of shoppers, right? Some shoppers are trying to get in and out quickly and just buy what's on their list. And mm-hmm. some are looking to learn about what's on sale. Maybe they didn't know when they came into the store and they're like, show me stuff that I maybe wasn't shopping for. So that, you know, when we talk about bringing the benefits of e-commerce to the physical store, we kind of summarize these as discovery, right? Which is learning about things, you know, aka recommendations, right? Learning about things that maybe I didn't know about as a shopper, but are interesting and I'll probably buy. Search, which is like optimizing the finding of what I know I'm looking for. And then personalization generally, which is can be a combination of those other two factors, but it can also just be about knowing, like you were saying, Jeff, like I'm on a particular dietary regimen, you know, I don't want anything that has these ingredients in it. 
you know, I only, I'm only, I'm keto or I'm paleo or I'm vegan or, you know, and just don't even show me anything that's not that. And so there's a way in which that kind of personalization can really help you feel taken care of, right, as a Mm -hmm. shopper. And I think even in grocery, you know, which is not traditionally a place where you feel like the brand experience is one of being taken care of, but maybe that can change. Yeah. Man, I, I, I cannot emphasize how cool that is. I mean, just, gosh, I just, you know, Ricardo's finally beat me down on retail media (laughs) and, you know, I'm now I'm just so engaged in what I'm consuming. I am just dying for that information. I mean, I, I will Mm -hmm. literally be the biggest dork imaginable when I go in, once your platform is available at, oh, let's just say Knob Hill Foods in Morgan Hill, California. (laughs) So I can just get this content. I will gladly receive any information, any ways to do, you know, meals related to the things I want and don't want. Oh my God. It's a game to me. It's unbelievable. It's an Mm -hmm. unbelievable game changer. You are now literally asking people to engage with your brand, with your store on the most personal basis imaginable. And it's the the intel that you'd get after six months is unbelievable. And I hope what we're going to find is more and more people are engaged in taking better care of our bodies. And maybe I just, I hope, I mean, it'd be my dream that we'd see a shift in what we're all consuming, but you know, that's all part of the intel that that your application could get to. Yeah. I mean, to me, especially in grocery. So what are the, in my mind, some of the big challenges? One is there is a discovery element, right? Because you do have so many, especially the larger the grocery store, the more choices per category you're going to find on the shelf. So what do you have available to you as a consumer, right? You could sit there and do it the hard way, right? On your phone and manually go and search for things, investigate while you're standing in the aisle, looking at the 10 different selections on the shelf to figure out which one is the one I want, right? Is it because one is going to have healthier ingredients in this product than another? Is it because it's more useful to me in whatever I intend to use this for and whatever recipe or other thing that you're going to make with it? But all of those are kind of disjointed pieces of information, right? That you have to go out and seek out and find. In, in my mind, you know what I think is unique here, right? You've got a really good way to tie all those things together. And if I'm the grocery store, I'm also, I'm assuming this is something that you'll see happen with this solution is you'll be going to those brands and saying, look, here's a new element to the shopping experience. I, as the retailer can now offer you to make your brand appear better in front of the consumer at the time, as you said it, Neil, at the time when not only is their intent, but it's at the time that you're picking from the shelf to buy that will help you win over the next brand in the spot right next to you on the shelf, which I have to say it, Jeff, brings it back to a retail media kind of scenario because that's something the retailer can sell to the brand, not, right? That's not, placement. You, you right? sold me, they man. Sold. You sold me. Yeah. You sold me. But doing not. it in a way that is delivering useful information yeah. to the consumer. The other thing that I find too is, you know, one, one is selecting products within a category, but, you know, how many times do you walk through the grocery store and you see something that catches your eye because it's actually been, you know, there's a display or something set up and you have no clue what to do with it. It's either a new product or a new ingredient or new something that you've never used before as a consumer that you've never bought at the store. And you're looking at it wondering, well, what can I do with this? Right. If, and now that here's a technology that all you have to do is look, right. You, you hold, whether you're looking through your phone or whatever the hardware device is in the future. And not only do you find out details about what it is, but you find out what are 10 ways you can use this, you know, in your, in your cooking at home, right? What are five yes. different things you can make with it that you would never have thought of? And had the store try to show you those five to 10 things, imagine the kind of d- messy display that would have had to have been created 
Oh. Or, you know, what are they going to do? Put out, print out signage, print out little papers that you have to pick up. And I've seen it done before, but the fact is, right, no consumer is going to do that. You're not going right. to take that. So it's a missed opportunity from the perspective of selling that item. But There's now so you, you, you magically have a way to, to give it to the consumer. You know, I think that there's my biggest pet peeve in commerce in general, especially with digital, is exclusionary filters. It's my biggest. I love exclusion. I may not know what I want, but I know what I don't want. I passionately mm-hmm. know what I do not right. want. I can yeah. just do four exclusionary yeah. filters. I'm going to have 90% better experience just by getting rid of the things. It's not that I don't like them. I hate them. And if you just remove my hate, I'm going to have a better shopping experience just because Mm -hmm. I was remove it. If I could walk down an aisle and just say, exclude corn syrup, and you Mm -hmm. could just, it literally, I only saw products that don't have corn syrup glow. I'm going to look, instead of me thinking I have one option to being like, I'm not without. Look at all my new options that I have that I didn't know about. I do get to have choice and I do get to like, it's not that I'm so limited. It's just that I just couldn't see it because I got all this junk in front of me. And I think that this is a, such a really interesting place is I'd love to see more exclusionary filters just in commerce in general. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a word for it, but I've now, I will now absolutely use exclusionary filters because I could not agree more. That is absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, yeah. if we exclude high t- fructose corn syrup, there ain't a whole lot of red. There's not a lot of glowing, but that's okay. Yeah. We'll make it's those okay really for me. We try to be so good, <laughs> but it, you know, a lot of times, you know, commerce makes it hard. And I think that if it was just easier to be good and it was easier to be thoughtful, we just, it'd be easier to be happy. No, yeah. <laughs> I think and so. Let's, let's, today, yeah, like let's ground this. Is, and like, has this way of being able to bring us more joy by getting rid of the things we don't want to do. And I find a lot of technology just makes us have to do more work. Well, and as you're saying earlier, Casey, I mean, just stores with massive amounts of stuff in your face, right? Like very densely packed shelves. In a way, you know, it requires you to do more work, right? You have to visually scan and parse and decide and... There's a way in which it's just the paradox of choice, or the burden of choice, right? I mean, this is definitely something that I experienced growing up in the US and then spending more time in Europe. Is it just like, yeah, it's just so relaxing. It's just like, ah, oh, I don't have to choose, right? And we think that choice is such an amazing benefit, but sometimes it's a burden. But we can definitely envision, right, a near future where even in a big box store where physically there's very dense, highly populated shelves aisle after aisle, you could still have this digital experience that is much more filtered, that Mm -hmm. shows you only what you're there for. And that could still, even in a a physically dense merchandising context, give you that sort of relaxed experience of, okay, it's curated for me digitally as I move through the store. And and then it it can be obviously differently curated for each shopper, right? Yeah. And I think this is a huge benefit. Super excited for what you guys are working on. <laughs> yeah, we're really, you know, it's really early stages. And like I said, when I use the word pilot, I mean, this is what we're doing and we're learning as we go, right? I mean, we want to learn in public with these retailers. But what's great is that 
like I said, there's a lot of enthusiasm from retailers we're speaking to. And it's not just grocery, but we're starting with grocery for these reasons. Mm -hmm. And we do have a couple luxury apparel retailers that are interested. And for them, they want to put digital art in the physical space to do brand activations or things like that. And that's great. And so we're really focused on where can we bring value and like functional utility to people on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. right? And because we're big believers that AR is the inevitable future of digital experience and communication, both, you know, from brand or company to customer, but also between people. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of thoughtfulness and aspiration and even philosophy sort of grounding what we're building at Aoki. Yeah. Well, I think if nothing else, I mean, I agree with your point about the potential for AR technology. And when I think about grocery, I think it's actually a pretty smart way to go to kind of focus on that. Because if there's one shopping experience that has, I, I would argue, not changed since the beginning of the grocery store, it's how we go to the grocery store and shop versus any other retail segment. So anything that can change that, kind of turn it around, make it much more, not just easier, but just more useful, right, for the consumer, then that's going to be a huge, huge win for everybody. We hope so. Yeah. Well, Neil, this has been an illuminating discussion. I think we're all super excited here for what you and Alki Labs are are doing. And I think we're all going to be watching for our nearest grocery store to see if where you guys turn up first in the hopefully near future to make our shopping experience better. Yeah, we'll keep you posted. You know, we've got a new website in the works. And so it'll be a lot easier, I think, at that point for people to stay in touch mm-hmm. with with what we're building. But I would say, you know, for now, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, mm-hmm. or just reach yeah. out to me on LinkedIn. You know, I post quite a bit about this. So and yeah, maybe we can have a conversation again, you know, down the road a number of months and yeah, we'll check in on update progress. you on yes, yeah, where we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, fantastic, Neil. Thanks again for having joined us. And Jeff, thanks again for guest hosting with us this time out. Wow, this is just fantastic, Ricardo. Thanks, as always. Thanks for being my guide through Shop Talk. Great experience. Absolutely fantastic number of interviews. And as always, I think Retail Racer is probably, without a doubt, the best structured podcast I've ever been a part of. I strive to, to catch up to what you're doing creatively and intellectually. So, yeah, so well done, as always, my friend. You're so hired. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we'll definitely bring you back on the show. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of endorsement. I have a a busy thing. It's like, and testimonials. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's it's easy. It's easy easy to do when it's it's the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, Casey, I think this is a wrap. It's a wrap. So great to have you guys. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Well, that was an insightful discussion, not what I was expecting. Hopefully everyone enjoyed that as much as we did talking about it. That's right. And as promised in the intro, we are back to chat a bit more about something that happened after we recorded that discussion. And yes, we're talking about what seems like everybody else is talking about, Apple's new Vision Pro product announcement and what we think it means for retail and commerce. Back with us again are Jeff Roster and Neil Redding. And I have to say, I can't wait to hear what you both think about this product announcement. So in the intro to this episode, I gave a quick story about how I started thinking about this product and its application, particularly around product research and discovery. So in my example, I had a lot of comparison shopping to do. 
had an endless number of web browser windows open on a screen in front of me when I did this, multiple devices going. And it occurred to me that if I thought about Apple's demo uh, where they presented Vision Pro, the idea might be that instead of having to deal with multiple devices, browser tabs, and so on, with their spatial computing idea, I'm just throwing up all these pages and, and product images and everything that I want to look at in the space in front of me, and I can move it around, manipulate it, look at anything I want side by side. I'm willing to guess I probably would have been done shopping five times faster than the time it actually took me. I have some thoughts on that example, but I want to hear what you all think about this first. So let's throw it to Neil. Sure. Yeah, great to be back with you guys. I actually love that that use case, Ricardo. I hadn't thought of that sort of a solution to a tab overload, I guess, right? When you're trying to do a lot of, of comparisons. And I think it, it fits into really the core of how Apple presented being able to use this this specific device, which I expect to certainly be a category-defining device, something that's really the opening gambit in a long-term roadmap or vision that they have. And we come back to that in a second, but certainly the core of what we're meant to take away from there is that this is about freeing up your 2D digital displays from the physical constraints of displays, right? Like how big they are, how heavy they are, you can effectively have, and they made a clear point of saying you can have a hundred foot wide display anywhere you want on an airplane, like in a room, wherever you are. And so, yeah, that kind of unconstrained ability to have digital displays in a, in a space, as many as you want, as big as you want, is exciting from an entertainment perspective, from a kind of power user perspective, you might say. And so that's super interesting. I agree. I think that's a long way of saying, I agree with that use case. Wow. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I love it. I think that makes sense. And, you know, just to add a little bit to that, if, if we could just sort of take a step back, because I'm, I'm really see this as, as someone who's been following augmented reality for quite a while. And I know you have as well. There's, it's overlapped with retail and sort of brand expression and sort of the, you know, the broad world of things that people offer for buying and selling in commerce for quite a long time. Augmented reality on the phones has been around for over a decade, but the, one of the things that has been missing that's, that felt like was necessary in order to move augmented reality from fringe or special case, you know, rather than moving it to mainstream, is felt like was Apple taking a strong stance in some way. You know, like there being a purpose built piece of hardware, not from a second tier or third tier kind of manufacturer. And there's been a lot of work over the past decade, but from a really influential technology company. It'd have to be one of the big, the big tech companies that would bring something that would be a clear consumer value proposition, right? So now we have that, right? And that's, I think, single-handedly, interestingly, the term spatial computing in that one keynote went from nerdy and techie to mainstream. And I've actually, we probably used the term earlier in the conversation, spatial computing, because the work we're doing at Alki Labs we talk about it being spatial computing because it's actually devices understanding where they are in space relative to other devices and other anchors so they can place digital information in physical space precisely. But that is what Apple, the phrase they use, spatial computing, and they said, this is our first spatial computer. And I think it was Tim Cook, if not, or maybe Craig Federici, one of, the, one of them, who bothered to say or no, it was the gentleman whose name I'm forgetting who introduced the Vision Pro itself, that said, sort of contextualized the Vision Pro 
in the history of Apple devices where he said, you know, the Mac introduced us to personal computing and the iPhone introduced us to mobile computing and this device introduces us to, oh, and, and the watch is wearable computing and this mm-hmm. is spatial computing, right? So very clearly positioning this as a category defining device aligned with spatial computing. So, but, and I just want to tie that back to the use case you mentioned, which is being able to place even 2D digital content sort of displays in the mm-hmm. space around you. So it's starting with, and they, they showed almost entirely 2D digital content. There was a little bit of 3D objects, right, in the keynote, but it's mostly what you would see on a screen, but now you can place it in your surroundings, in your living room, in your workspace. So it feels like a compelling opening game, but it's also meeting people where we already are. I mean, this is another, another thing, and I'll stop with this point for the moment. It's just that what I think Apple does really, really brilliantly, unlike pretty much everybody else who's brought out an immersive or XR, AR, VR device, is really meeting people where they already are with use cases they already understand. It's like you use your creative tools, you edit, you edit your documents, you share them with your coworkers, you watch entertainment. Like These are all things you already do, and here's a way to think about doing it better. You know, So I think that was important as well. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of use cases over the last few years that it's just been too small, too slow, and they've just, the experiences have just been flat and really lack the luster of the consumer's imaginations because we've, we've been exposed to these imaginary technologies through Hollywood. And so you, I think that this is a really great milestone for us to have Apple lead to drive this momentum to create experiences that matter because I feel like consumers are so much more ready to play and to experience this but a lot of the use cases are just like it's not worth it or there's too few far between and I think that this can really drive a lot of momentum to create these like new types of moments. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, I think to that point, one thing that Apple does well with this is they introduce a new device that is ostensibly intended to create a new category, but it's creating that new category by giving us a new way to do a number of things that we probably already do, maybe not do in the best way. They're giving us what is hopefully a better way in their view with this product to do certain things. And they're emphasizing that versus emphasizing the net new things that you're going to do. And they do this all. If you think back when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, it was all about the three things that it could do for you, which lots of other people were introducing products that do those same three things. But this, and he talked about the three new things. And then in the very last moment, he told you, well, do you get it? It's actually one product that does three things. And he pulled out an iPhone. And it was the first device, right? Showing you that it, it and it wasn't about, because remember the, the biggest thing about the iPhone really was the app store eventually, but that came later. Right when first the iPhone was just those three things that Steve Jobs said it was going to do, it was giving you a new way to do those three things that you presented was a better way with a single device. So you didn't need three things or three different ways to accomplish those. And in a way, this is sort of the same thing. It's kind of like Apple saying, yeah, we hear everybody out there doing all this 3D virtual world and stuff, but that's a small niche right now of people who want that and who people who know what to do with that. And instead of trying to force that on everyone. Let's give everyone a way to kind of sort of do what that is, but still grounded in your real space, but do a lot of other things that you might want to have a better way to do using this technology. And then once you get used to it, guess what? There's going to be all kinds of developers will introduce 
new things you can do. And it's going to get closer and closer to what those other things are. But by the time you get there, you've kind of trained your audience to already act that way. And it no longer feels like a new, strange thing that you're not used to. And then I think the other thing that strikes to me, and then I'm dying to hear what Jeff is thinking because I can see the wheels turning just by watching <laughs> your, your video, I'm, Jeff, I'm what you're thinking here. But, but then the, the other piece I think we can give him credit is the interface design, right? So this is, and I, I think this is true, the first such product of this type that has no other physical controller to plug into it. It's just right. the goggles, right? There's no hand controllers. It just, it's smart enough to detect what I'm looking at, what I'm pointing at, what I'm doing without any additional devices attached to me, which I would argue is probably what creates the awkwardness for most consumers in this technology space. Right. So you've got that user interface aspect of it that they've also improved pretty significantly, I think. Yeah. Interesting. So what I would say when I looked at that is, and in, in full disclosure, I'm surrounded by thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars worth of Apple gear. And I'm not necessarily, I didn't adopt any of this fast and furious, but I, I in the process of life, have adopted off of this, a lot of this technology. And I use it in the creative process. So I looked at that, I watched the whole thing unfold and I said, wow, this is really, this is really a significant, he's not new. He did not create this category, but he's optimizing this category. And it's now serious. Apple is now serious about this category. So we've been, you know, we've been talking about augmented reality, virtual reality for a while, been a bit, a little bit silly about it. This, I'm, it's no longer silly. When I think about, and I think about how some of the people in my line of work responded to it, make, sort of making fun of the price point, extremely expensive, no doubt about that. Oh, expensive. I will push back on that. <laughs> and, and, you know, who's going to use this? And I just immediately flash back to the, the rollout of the iPad. And I, I, to this day, can remember very, very smart people making fun of the name. And I won't go into why they made fun of it. Some of us can remember that and, mm -hmm. and how silly it was. And I just remember thinking, wow, that is a whole different deal. Somebody that li lives in front of a screen and had at that point lived in front of a screen for at least 10 years and research. I thought this is fantastic. And I'm um, now behind that shelf is probably at least five different iPads. I literally have the entire, got the Smithsonian selection of, of iPad, the life <laughs> of the iPad. So yeah, this is a big deal. This is a really, really, really big deal. Have not full disclosure. I have not had a chance to to demo the headset, and probably won't because I don't need to spend that much money right now. And I know what's going to happen if I do. So, <laughs> but man, that's a big deal. This is a really, really, really big deal. I cannot wait to get to NRF twenty twenty four to see who's who's demoing that. I think I think I mm -hmm. I would suspect Neil might have some some games or, or some aspects around that. And I, I think this says to the creative community. This is real. This is no longer a game. This, um, this is, I'm not going to replace all those screens because it's not going to replace those, Ricardo, because I mm -hmm. guarantee you I will have an iPhone, if nothing else, yeah. just for the camera. And I'm certainly not going to wear those, those, th that headset 24 hours a day. The other thing thinking about that, I just got back from a cross country flight and it was at night. So, um, you know, I had a chance to, you could just see what everyone's watching, maybe a little different than the day. I saw people watching and working on gigantic laptops. I saw them watching content on iPhones, on iPads. And I remember thinking, why in the world would anybody watch content on, on a small phone? And guess what I was doing? I was watching content on a small phone <laughs> because I had already gotten used to the, like, I'm going to accept whatever, depending on what the content is, do I need to really have some an immersive experience or is it just Am I just watching retail razor and, and looking at the latest little audiogram or videogram of that? So we've already ex 
expanded and contracted how we want to consume information. And now this just takes it to a, to a whole different level. So I'm, I'm actually really excited. I think it's important as an analyst. I think it's an inflection point. Definitely didn't create the category, but I think they, they sent a message. This is a very, very serious aspect and iteration. And you might want to stop making fun of, of this, this thing that we're sort of moving into and start looking at and doing real analysis of what, what we have here. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, you just brought up a really good point. I always take red eyes. And I'm always taking red eyes. And I work the whole way. You're the one. And (laughs) the amount of people that hate me because I have the only laptop open. Exactly. Glowing. Glowing. (laughs) Glowing. Glowing. Yeah. Lighting up the plane. You were sitting next. Um, one of the you, things- were sitting across, you were sitting across from me last night, weren't you? Because that is exactly it. It wasn't even a. It was just a, a phone, and the dude had it cranked all the way up. And by the way, you had to turn the overhead light on to to help illuminate the phone. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? But anyway, I go ahead. Feel the hate on that six hour flight yeah. <laughs> around me because I had that glowing screen. Maybe I should get one of these sooner than later. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I just I could so easily see that, man. I mean, could you imagine? I've, and I've got a I've got a trip to India in, in three or four months, and maybe I don't know. Maybe I spring for this th- this thing for that trip just just to be able to sit for fourteen hours and just. But there are two things you, you both have pointed to that I think, but were alluded to without naming exactly, right? On in an airplane context, that this couldn't really solve for. One is just. Privacy, and I thought when you, Jeff, when you were walking through this, you, you might mention that you get to see what everybody's watching, what everybody's working on, and, and did one hundred percent looked at that. It's, 100%. it's a bit vulnerable, right? Even out of the corner of your eye, you might be like, "Ooh, what's the content of that spreadsheet?" You know, is there any competitive intel on there? Right? I mean, but like, we don't worry too much about that. But but if we can, if we could keep it private, which you certainly could, if it was just on a on a headset. Wouldn't you? Maybe that'll be advantage. Yeah. And then also to your point, Casey, you can avoid being the disruptor and maybe that feels better. It's just, it's like other people aren't going to be annoyed and that just makes it easier for for you as well as for everybody. So both of those are dimensions of what this category promises, I think. But I, I think, and we've also, I think, alluded in this conversation to a lot, a lot of people have pointed to Yes, the price point of this particular device. And also this particular device is not something portable. It's not something people would wear for very long. The battery life is still quite low. But I agree with one of the colleagues that I spoke with recently, what they had said, which is that if this was nothing but just a world-class marketing event, it would still be successful, right? It's the opening gambit again in this in this 10-year roadmap or, or more, right? That right. Apple is, yeah. is leading here. We can think of it as... And it was very, very strategically sequenced and scoped. So again, you know, showing people things they already are familiar with, as opposed to all these other headsets, which have invited you to do something that you don't already do and are questioning whether you would want to do it. And everybody who's used the device has said it's the learning curve is so quick and so short that that within a few minutes, you feel like you don't even feel like you're controlling a, a device. Like you look, you speak. You tap, and this is just what Apple does better than anybody else. And so, right. it's it's just very, in terms of the interaction design, in terms of the context that they're showing us, you know, that we can use use this first device for. It's just so much meeting people where they already are, doing what they're already doing. They also spend a lot of time talking about the spatial context, the spaces in which we do things in our lives, 
And as someone focused on retail and also focused on spatial computing with what we're building in Alki Labs, this was very, very encouraging to us because this is a world-class company thinking kind of for the first time about their consumer device, how it shows up in physical spaces that we inhabit throughout our days, our workspaces, our home spaces. And then eventually, I think, our, with smaller form factors, with more mass market price points, are places of commerce, right? Places that we would shop or places that we would visit, you know, hotels or cultural centers, museums, things like this, right? And so it's easy to start thinking about if you have this layer of digital content in a store or in a museum, like, what would that, what could that be? It can be personalized. It can be targeted just to you. It can be very localized to that physical spot, to that place, right? So yeah, this is like the $100,000 roadster from Tesla where people said, you know, who's going to yes. buy that thing? And right. Right. Elon that was very point. blunt. He just said, look, I'm going to, I'm, I'm using rich people to fund our R&D and we will eventually right. have a, an yeah. affordable product for everybody. And right. that's what Tesla did. So it's here. I think it's the same kind of trajectory. And yeah. And so the other point yeah. I made earlier is that, you know, Apple has done this at least four times look at an existing category and refine it to become the dominant mm -hmm. product in that category. Arguably, they haven't dominated personal computing in terms of volume, but I think mm -hmm. they've also been very influential from the introduction yeah. of the Mac. Yeah, the, from a design uh, point With of the view. phone, yeah. and, they don't, and they don't beat on volume, you know, other makers, but they do on influence, I would say. And it's mm -hmm. the same with the watch, the same with, with the iPad. And, and I would not bet against them in this category either. Yep, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess there's another term too, that we seem to talk more and more about this year in retail in terms of making a device that's profitable <laughs> versus others. I think they usually win on that point too. If you look at iPhone versus other smartphones. So oh, absolutely. That, so and that advantage as well. And so just to add one other piece, it's really helping people, I think, start to think about what it is to have you know, digital content in physical space that can so be put at different mm -hmm. places in space. And, and this is a, a step-by-step -step process, right? I mean, they, they didn't give you more in that keynote than, than for most of us, we can, we can chew or we can digest it at this moment. But as they start showing and as we and other developers start building more three-dimensional digital objects that can become part of a shared physical reality, it'll become more and more clear. Right over time. And this is something that we at Alki Labs, I you know, mentioned earlier in the conversation, that we're able to create shared augmented reality with our spatial positioning infrastructure. And something like this, this glass could be digital. If we were all in the same room together, we could look at this and say, yes, this is here. This is part of our shared reality, even though it's a digital thing. And Apple didn't show any use cases like that yet, but this is where, where things are headed, that digital information and objects will not just be privately viewable in shared physical space, but also be publicly viewable as a shared thing. And, mm -hmm. and this is going to be really, really powerful because it's going to enable the kind of communication, right? Between yeah. people, just like show and tell as kids, we would bring in this, this exciting new thing and it's a physical thing. And it's look at this. I played with this over the weekend or I made this, and this is really exciting. And if we could do show and tell digitally. You know, it's a simple yeah. you know, oversimplification, but this is obviously it has implications for 
product promotion and selling and trial and all kinds of mode that retail assumes, right? In different contexts too. Yeah. I I think if there's one takeaway we can leverage from that is just that it's it's setting things up for more. And whether the more comes from commerce and retail use cases that we might be most interested in or just other things, devices analogous to it that we've done these comparisons in this discussion with before it, it, it isn't necessarily apparent at the beginning that it does grow and evolve and create new things that we either don't expect or, or don't see, you know, just don't predict effectively, but it, it eventually evolves to that. And you can see that kind of starting to take shape here, I think, with what we've been talking about and, and where the, this whole category, of, I guess we're not all going to start calling it spatial computing as, a, as the mainstream word for it and what direction it's headed and, and what impact Apple's going to have on it. What did you say, Carl? We are or are not going to start calling it spatial computing. What, what did you say? I, I th- I'm saying we are. I, I, I think we'll oh, start seeing that term more that's, and more, right? Yeah, this spatial computing term. That, that's and, and the value. Because, you know, in the Apple tradition, they don't like to attach themselves to an existing convention or nomenclature. They like to define it. And even though I don't think I can claim it's their term that they came up with, but they chose this one that was not a mainstream term. Right. I think, Neil, you mentioned that earlier. It wasn't the mainstream term everybody was used to yes. hearing, but I think now that they've started using it, it will become the mainstream term. And it, exactly. Yeah. And in terms of, it was like a ratification or a, in a way a blessing of that, of that right. term, which like I said, yeah, right. it, was more, it was more geeky and nerdy. And I actually paused a little bit when I've used it in the past, but we've decided mm-hmm. at Labs, like spatial computing. But I feel like yeah, super useful Apple's marketing. And I think we'll see in the coming months, like how they continue to talk about it, if, you know, how hard they lean into that as a term. But I think it's, it's really useful to the extent that they want to help people think about the possibilities of everything that we see on 2D screens showing up in physical space, right? It's spatial computing. It's spatial content, it's spatial interaction. And, and so it's just training people to think beyond the 2D screen, right? And a lot of what's been happening in AR headsets over the past year, for anyone who went to CES, I think the big takeaway from this past January CES in terms of base-worn hardware is big big 2D screens that you can see through glass. This is the main use case for the moment because it's something that the hardware can do. And it seems like there's there's enough of a base, you know, of interested buyers for that for that use case, for that kind of solution. And it's interesting that Apple started with that. But to your point about terminology, Ricardo, it was also fascinating that Apple, not once, and it would have been, I mean, they didn't use the term metaverse at all. And I was, I would have been very surprised if they did, because Tim Cook had interviews over the past year or two, but asked about metaverse. He's like, no one knows what that term means. It's just not mm-hmm. something people understand. It's pretty clear that they were already staking out their territory in terms of their positioning and and strategic planning that we're not going to jump on that bandwagon. And it was honestly very Apple, but still almost audacious and certainly refreshing. The language that they used was not other people's language. I think they very clearly wanted to differentiate what they're doing from all the other things that people have laughed off or been confused by or or just marginalized as irrelevant, like they're doing something different. Right, or, that's right. Yeah. Or, right, like yeah. or anything coming before. It's like, we just invented this whole thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the brilliance is their brand equity is so strong and the brand loyalty they have with consumers on where they're placed in the market 
is anything now will always be seen as second best because that's mm-hmm. just how a lot of people look at Apple versus everything else is it's the better computer. It's better wireless right. head. It's a better this. It's a better that. So I think it's just going to be able to drive competition, drive momentum and validate everyone who's been building for this space that just really needed a delivery vehicle to take a serious movement and say, we're going. Absolutely. You know, one other thing that's just true of Apple and I, as a technologist and as a product person, it's almost moving to me and I can stop sort of being a little fanboy here in a second. But I just love when Tim Cook says, we just make the best products we can make. Like we're not trying to make something that's affordable to everybody you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the point, anything else. And, and right now the best product in this category they can make costs $3,500. And I think it's probably lower margin at that price point based on everything I've read than their other products by a long shot. I mean, they have very, for anyone who's following like the hardware specs and what it's capable of and, and thinks about the, the cost of all the sensors and cameras and, and materials. I mean, it's a very expensive device to manufacture right now, and even with their own silicone. And so they just made the best device they can make. That's, I think that's what it costs right now, you know? I mean, just look, just look at the analyst's response. I mean, it was just constant making fun. It's like, guys, when, when are you going to learn? Just, just relax, l- l- yeah. watch the market evolve, you know? Right. But everyone ha- everyone has to have their hot take, hot take, hot take. You know, it's, you know you're just going to look silly because I'm going to see these tweets in six months or a year and you're just going to mm-hmm. look foolish. But, you know, but I agree with you. It, it, it was, it's always just such a beautiful example of just be who you are as a company, lay it out. We are not for everyone. We might not even be for the, the majority, but we're going to make something. We're going to create a category. Oh, I'm not create it, but we're going to optimize and, and validate a category, which is they surely are doing. And, and now every single analyst has to take this, oh, well, what does this mean to what I'm doing? What does this mean to what I'm doing? What does it mean to the verticals? What does it mean to everything? It's just, it's just crazy how they can get away with that. And he, he, the way he does it, there's not the aggression that you see with some of the other folks. It's just so, so beautiful, smooth, just here's who we are, mm-hmm. here's what we're doing, and we are just going to roll over you. And we're not going to do it, with, we're going to do it with the minimum of brashness. But we're gonna, we're, but we're gonna do it, and you're gonna end up on the on the on the ground just just if we came and yelled. It was just beautiful to watch. I've watched this now for 20 years, and or studied it for 20 years, and just keeps rolling. This is all very exciting. You guys are just so much fun. I love these types of conversations where we can all just kind of come in here and shoot the shit. Our bonus track might need to be spun out into its own episode right now. <laughs> the bonus track is a podcast at this point, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I want to thank you guys for, you know, coming together and rallying on the fly for this. And this episode is a wrap. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Remember to smash that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player or on YouTube so you don't miss a minute. If you want to know more about what we talked about today, take a look at our show notes for handy links and more deets. And be sure to sign up for our new Substack newsletter for the full transcript of the show. I'm your co-host, Casey Golden. 
And if you'd like to connect with us and share your feedback, follow us on Twitter at KCC Golden and Ricardo underscore Belmar, or find us on LinkedIn. Be sure to follow the show on LinkedIn at Retail Razor for the latest updates. And if you want even more from us, check out and subscribe to our new Substack. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. Thanks for joining us. And remember, there's never been a better time to be in retail if you cut through the clutter. Until next time, this is The Retail Razor Show.